Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie and I'm back with more on Bruce Lee. There's so much left to talk to you about when it comes to his fascinating life. And I definitely lied when I said I was going to try to make this two parts as there's absolutely going to be a third. I would love to break it down into a little less, but I think there is so much of his life that is important to his story. He lived in a time where he faced a lot of challenge due to his race and in his short life he did so much for martial arts, Hollywood, and the people that were in his life. I also like to keep my episodes a little shorter so you don't feel like you have to cut it off to continue on with your life since you were probably just driving to work or running an errand to listen to me anyway. So with that being said, I'm going to do a quick recap. Last week I told you about his childhood. He was brought into the world during war times and was fortunate enough to find a way to prosper through the struggle. He started his life fighting illness and quickly became a handful his parents struggled to control. His acting career started when he was just a baby and he was in a lot of movies throughout his life in Hong Kong. When I left off, he had just arrived in America and was starting to settle down. I want to bring you today his life in America, the many famous friends that he made, and his fight to make it back into the film industry. So Bruce is now in Seattle to begin school after his brief time over the summer teaching cha-cha classes for money. He goes to stay with a friend of his father, the person that he wanted to give Bruce a reality check, his friend's wife, Ruby. She was a formidable force, and her restaurant was a meeting place for white CEOs, politicians, and journalists. If there was any problem in Chinatown, she was trusted by the people to help resolve it. She was just the person Hoi Chuen thought could help turn his son around. Bruce was sleeping in a walk-in closet above her restaurant and forced to wash dishes after school. Because of this, he refused to give her face and call her either Auntie or Mrs. Chow, as he felt like he was treated more like an indentured servant. He refused to spend the money his father gave him, but he didn't know that his mother was sending money to Ruby to help cover his expenses and pad his paycheck. They might not have gotten along in the three years he stayed above the restaurant and worked for her, but she was a very big part in his transformation. He became determined to make something of himself. He went to Edison Technical Vocational High School that had an adult education program for older students and offered classes for people who wanted to learn a trade. He was able to earn his high school diploma in 18 months with a 2.6 GPA that just a few years ago his family would have thought was impossible. Aside from school and washing dishes, he spent his time with the Chinese Youth Club, whose head instructor was one of his father's friends, but someone Bruce regarded with respect. He called him Uncle Fook. He knew several styles of Kung Fu and would teach Bruce the basics of praying mantis, eagle claw, and tai chi. This became part of his journey to learn different styles of kung fu to combine them into one super system and be the best kung fu artist in the world. Bruce would combine his passions for a performance at the 1959 Seattle Sea Fair. He would first take the stage to do a cha-cha demonstration and then later demonstrate Southern praying mantis form. He would enamor a young African-American man named Jesse Glover, who 
who was a black belt in judo but wanted to learn kung fu. He just couldn't find anyone willing to teach a black man. And once he discovered he lived only four blocks from Bruce and that they went to the same school, he took his chance to ask. Bruce decided he would take a chance regardless of the stigma in Chinese culture about teaching a non-Chinese person kung fu. After their first lesson, they became inseparable. Jesse would recruit his roommate, Ed Hart, and a fellow judo student, Skip Ellsworth, to join them for practice. During a demonstration at the school, Bruce picked the baddest guy in the crowd to come on stage and ask him to hit him. He would dodge all the hits, strike and stop within millimeters of impact. Before finishing, he tied up his arms and tapped him on the head, asking, is anyone home? After the demonstration was over, James DeMille would ask him to teach him his technique. He would recruit Leroy Garcia from the audience, five more people from the judo club, and a man who heard about the classes being held down the street from the supermarket he worked at. Bruce had built a new group of followers through the demonstration of his skills and word of mouth by his followers. He would teach them what he knew, but they also served to help him get better and perfect his famous one-inch punch. Throughout his life, he would demonstrate his punch and send many large men flying. This is one skill I would love to learn myself. His students also pushed his limits and forced him to grow in his style. They were taller, heavier, and veteran fighters, and through them he was able to find value in different techniques like western boxing punches and footwork as well as judo throws and chokes. He was merging the best of the east and west. His students would also become his friends and provide him with people to lean on, confide in, and socialize with in a new country where he was sent to start over. Bruce and his crew would pull some money together to rent a space where Bruce could start teaching lessons for money. The word was getting out and the crowds were forming where they were practicing. He knew he could turn this into something more. He was only 19, but he could see his dreams becoming a reality. To gain students, he would take his group and perform demonstrations for various fairs and events, slowly creating his onstage persona that would combine his humor, philosophical side, and the fearsome fighter that he was. The problematic side to his demonstrations was when he would discuss how other martial arts practices were inferior. He would insult as many people, if not more, than he would win over. This would result in some challenge fights, and he infamously won one of these fights in a mere 11 seconds that resulted in the challenger swallowing his pride and training with Bruce for a month before he ended up dropping out of classes. Unfortunately, in May of 1961, the school he opened would be shut down when some of his friend group started to move on. It would take a year for him to open a new school, but this time it would be more formal and open to the public, and his students would be calling him Sifu or Master. On March 27, 1961, Bruce would enroll in the University of Washington, much to the pleasure of his parents. His father danced around singing, we picked the right horse to bet on proud that his son was becoming what he knew he always could be. His major would be drama, but aside from the main courses he was required to take, he would pick classes that piqued his interest most, choosing gymnastics, dance, judo, drawing, and public speaking. In college, he began to explore psychology and philosophy, which become a lifelong passion for him. His friend Skip Ellsworth had joined a fraternity, and Bruce went to frat parties, often demonstrating his one-inch punch, two-finger push-ups, sticky hands, and various kung fu forms for the guys while teaching cha-cha to the sorority girls. He was the life of the party and had a chance to see how the other half lived. He would often joke about what they would think if they found out that he lived in a closet and washed dishes at a Chinese restaurant. 
Since this was prime Vietnam War time, he was required to join the ROTC, where he rebelliously disobeyed the sergeants and was lucky enough to avoid the draft because one of his testicles had not descended. Apparently, this makes you medically unfit, but the biggest risk factors of this condition is infertility and an increased risk of testicular cancer. He would have surgery in 1969 to remove the testicle in question. In the summer of 1963, as promised, Bruce would return home to visit his family and show them that he had made something of himself. He left by boat in embarrassment and arrived home by plane as a success. He gave his father a $100 bill to return what he was given when he left and gifted him a brand new overcoat. Father and son embraced, and while Hoi Chuan grinned ear to ear proud of the man that had returned home, Bruce would shed tears as he forgave his father and told him he wouldn't have changed his outlook on life without the banishment to America. After four years of training and teaching Kung Fu, he was excited to show what he had learned to his family and test out his skill on his Hong Kong masters. When he left in 1959, he was considered to be the sixth best and was disappointed to have only gone up to fourth best. It was quite the feat to go up that high as everyone above him was many years the senior. It just fueled his desire to keep training and keep improving. While in Hong Kong for the summer, he would get a circumcision. When his brother asked why, he simply said, it's what they do in America. I'm American and I want to look the part. At the end of July, Bruce would return home, hugging his father, Hoi Chuen, for the last time. In 1963, Linda Emery is in her senior year of college when she sees a popular cheerleader walking with Bruce on her arm. She asks her friend Sue Ann Kay, who is that? And she tells her Bruce Lee. They swoon over his good looks, but Linda is enamored with him, and he quickly invades her thoughts. Knowing that her friend Sue Ann takes Kung Fu lessons with him, she decided to check it out and see what all the fuss is about. So in August of 1963, Linda attends her first class, and she thought he was a little cocky, but she liked that about him, as she was someone that struggled with self-doubt. She would begin to attend Sunday classes regularly and would join Bruce and other students for lunch and a film after. One weekend, Bruce took them to see The Orphan, and as they entered the theater, he just nonchalantly said, oh yeah, I'm in the movie. Of course, seeing him on screen only made her more interested in Bruce. The fall semester was approaching, and Bruce would move his studio closer to the university campus, where he would have more space and a place he would be able to live. He was able to finally get out of that closet at Ruby's and give her his notice. At the same time, Linda was enrolling as a pre-med student. One afternoon, while the students were racing, Bruce tackled Linda as she was lagging behind the rest of the students. He asked her out to dinner, and on October 15, 1963, they would go on their first date to the Space Needle that had been built for the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. It was a revolving restaurant that towered over the city. He gifted her a Scandinavian Cupid doll with the hair braided in pigtails as she often did for classes and ended the night with a kiss. Five days later, he would write her a love note and cement their love story. Now, Linda's mother didn't approve of her dating outside of her race, to be blunt, and had previously forced her to end a relationship with a half-Japanese boy in high school. She would have to figure out how to juggle school and sneaking around to see her boyfriend, and this was causing her to fall a little behind on her schoolwork. So Bruce would often help her on English papers when she would fall behind, as he was a very prolific writer. Bruce had a woman who loved him and was invested in his dreams, and now it was time for his dreams to expand. It all started when Bruce worked for the Seattle Times as a newspaper stuffer. 
He would slip quotes about himself and his Jun Fan Gong Institute. The advertisements paid off as it drew more attention to his demonstrations and got him some TV appearances. He was able to get enough students to put his institute in the black. In 1962, he was introduced to and would befriend James Lee, who self-published martial arts books seeing the lack of English language books available. He studied jiu-jitsu and sil um kung fu and had a specialty in iron palm. Bruce was thrilled that James sent someone to find him and wanted to talk to him. In the spring of 1963, James had turned his two-car garage into the second branch of Bruce's Kung Fu Institute. After Bruce finished his junior year in 1964, the plan was to go to Oakland and open a new franchise in a new location. In 1963, they co-wrote the book Chinese Kung Fu, The Philosophical Art of Self-Defense, which would be the only book Bruce would author in his lifetime. It was intended to be the first in a series. Profits would help Bruce pay off various expenses that he had. Busy with his business ventures, Bruce would leave the University of Washington after his junior year and move in with James Lee and his family in Oakland. He tasked his assistant instructor, Taki Kimura, to run the Seattle branch while he established the Oakland location. He would put on a demonstration at Wally J's Summer Luau to promote the future opening. The Oakland branch would open on July 24, 1964, and Bruce would make this an exclusive club. He only wanted advanced and dedicated students. If someone said they wanted to join just so they could learn to beat up their neighbor, they would not be getting in. As a result, it would make it hard to find members. In August, he would return to Seattle as there was something very important that he needed to take care of. Despite concerns of infertility, the goodbye sex that took place before his departure to Oakland led to Linda getting pregnant. She told him before he left, so while he was gone, an important decision was to be made. He told her he was coming back to get her and that he wanted to marry her. They planned on a secret elopement, but at the time, you had to apply for a marriage license, get blood tests, and there was a three-day wait. During that time, the local newspaper published their intent to marry in the vital statistics section, which Linda's aunt was a devoted reader of. This resulted in a few tense days where Linda's family would argue, beg, negotiate, and plead their case on why she shouldn't marry a Chinese man. Upon the discovery that she was pregnant, and their inability to convince her otherwise, they eventually consented with the stipulation that the marriage be held in a church. They quickly made arrangements with the minister at Seattle's Congregational Church and were married on August 17, 1964, with just Linda's mother and grandmother in attendance from her side and Bruce's assistant instructor, Taki Kimura. Bruce only told his own parents after the wedding, as they objected to him marrying a non-Chinese woman, but ultimately said, if she's your choice, then she's our choice. Bruce would eventually win over Linda's mother, and she would grow to love him. Bruce and Linda had followed in Bruce's own parents' footsteps. Linda and Grace both pursued and fell in love with actors after watching one performance, and both married a man that their families disapproved of who had very big dreams. Linda would move with Bruce to Jimmy's home in Oakland, where she would nanny his children and help care for his wife who was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. 1964 was a big year for martial arts, as judo was just accepted into competition at the Summer Olympics, and karate was one of the hottest fads in America. The big celebrities of the time were devoted students, and if you wanted to make it, you needed to be an instructor to the stars. One such karate instructor was Ed Parker, and in the summer of 1964, he wanted to combine Hollywood and karate with his Long Beach International Karate Championships. Martial artists could compete in front of enthusiasts and Hollywood insiders. This could lead to more of them breaking into Hollywood as action stars and stuntmen. 
Jimmy was friends with Parker and invited him to scout out Bruce. This competition could gain some big recognition for Bruce, and of course, he was able to impress him and earn his ticket to Long Beach. He would do a demonstration that was slightly modified to what he did at Wally J's Luau. His performance and speech about deconstructing traditional practices and encouraging individual styles for students made a big impression. Mike Stone, who had defeated Chuck Norris at the competition, would become his first high-profile student. Jun Ri, the father of American Taekwondo, would become his ally and supporter, and Ed Parker, a role model. That performance would end up resulting in the launch of his Hollywood career. Before the age of the internet, Hollywood hairstylists had all the information for the movie industry. Jay Sebring had many celebrity clients, such as Paul Newman, Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas, and the TV producer, William Dozier. Now, Dozier was getting his hair done and talking about wanting to make a series that would feature a Chinese James Bond type character. Sebring, having been at the Long Beach International Karate Championship, knew just the guy, Bruce Lee. Sebring and Parker took the film of Bruce they had taken during the championship to Dozier's office at 20th Century Fox for him to see Bruce in action. On January 21st, 1965, Dozier knew he had found his man and called James Lee to talk to Bruce, and just like that, he had been discovered. On February 1st, 1965, the first day of the Chinese New Year, Linda gave birth to Brandon Bruce Lee. Bruce knew his first child would be a boy, so they had only picked out a boy's name for the baby. Bruce would give him the Chinese name Gak Ho, which means national hero. Bruce was so proud to give his family the first grandchild. He proudly declared he had a blonde-haired, gray-eyed Chinaman, maybe the only one around. His screen test was just three days after Brandon was born, and Bruce would leave his newborn baby and wife to hop on a plane in hopes of breaking into Hollywood and providing them with a good future. Now, I know you want to judge him for not rescheduling, but at the time, it was very difficult for Asian actors to get cast in anything. This was an opportunity to get back into acting and possibly give his family the life that he wanted for them. Jay Sebring would pick up Bruce from the airport and they immediately bonded over his muscle car, but even more over a mutual love of martial arts, fashionable clothes, stylish haircuts, and beautiful women. Sebring was actually dating actress Sharon Tate at the time. When he went into the screening, he was obviously very nervous, so Dozier started by asking him some easy questions just to start a conversation. He then shifted to topics about martial arts and eventually to Kung Fu and Kung Fu. In a surprise to the assistant director, they encouraged him to be Bruce's volunteer while he threw punches and kicks at him, all the while stopping just before impact. The nerves disappeared for Bruce, and the screen casting was a success. He flew home to his wife and baby the next day. Unfortunately, exactly one week after Brandon's birth, Bruce's father, Hoi Chuen, would pass away. He had been sick for a long time, and the doctors said the years of smoking opium had weakened his heart and lungs. They say that since he discovered he had a grandson to carry on the family lineage, he was finally able to let go. With Brandon being so young and Linda still recovering from the birth, they decided that she and the baby would stay with Linda's mother temporarily, while Bruce went to Hong Kong for his father's funeral. Since Bruce was not present when his father passed away, it was custom for him to come crawling back to ask for forgiveness. Upon arrival at the mortuary, Bruce dropped to his knees, crawled on all fours to his father's casket while wailing uncontrollably. Bruce also looked a little crazy as he was not allowed to cut his hair or shave. Bruce would use part of his inheritance from his father to buy Linda her own wedding ring to replace the one that James Lee's wife had let her borrow. 
He would return home to get a call from Dozier that the screen test went well and they wanted him to sign a contract for $1,800, which would be somewhere around $16,000 today. Bruce decided to shut down his Oakland branch as there weren't enough students to cover expenses and used some of the money to take his wife and son to Hong Kong to finally meet his family, pitching it as the honeymoon they never got to have. On May 7th, Bruce, Linda, and three-month-old Brandon arrived in Hong Kong. Much like what happened with Bruce, the humid air caused Brandon to fall ill, but being the only grandchild, he had all the women in the family to take care of him and bring him back to health. Linda would later say they all spoiled him and he couldn't mutter a peep without being rescued by a well-meaning grandma or auntie. The number one son that Bruce had been cast for kept getting delayed, and to keep him happy, his agent worked on finding him a new role. In the meantime, Bruce would reach out to his friends in the Hong Kong movie business to brag about his upcoming role and spark some interest back in him. If Hollywood didn't work out, Bruce would make sure the buzz in Hong Kong would create a backup plan for him. When they arrived back in Seattle, they moved into Linda's mother's home, which is really when they started to bond. While waiting for number one son to shoot, which unfortunately never does, he teaches some classes and starts to work on crafting his own martial arts form. And after four months, they decide to go back to James Lee's home, as they feel they've outworn their welcome at Linda's mother's. His movie career was all hinged on the success of Dozier's current project, Batman. After the launch of Batman being a success, Dozier pitched number one son to ABC, and they rejected it. The reason behind it was not revealed, but it is speculated that they weren't willing to back something with an Asian lead character. That would be just a little too ahead of the times for them. Luckily, Dozier had some backup ideas up his sleeve and decided to try his hand with another comic-based series, The Green Hornet. It wouldn't be the lead role that Bruce hoped for, but the Green Hornet sidekick was a faithful Japanese valet named Kato, and that just might work. As much as Bruce didn't want to be the sidekick, he was under contract with Dozier and had a young family to support, so he told him that he would take the role if it was upgraded and modernized from the radio version. Kato wouldn't be a servant, but a partner. In preparation for shooting, Bruce worked with Jeff Corey for some formal acting training, the only training he would ever have. He would be paid $400 a week, which was much less than his co-stars, but Bruce fortunately never found out, and it was most likely due to his race. However, he was able to move his family into their own apartment, where they were finally able to live alone for the first time. They used to survive on only $100 to $200 a month, so regardless of the discrimination and pay, for them, this was a very big upgrade. Bruce also received a tip from Burt Ward, who played Robin on Batman that lived in the same apartment building that the manager was willing to cut deals with Hollywood actors and other special tenants. Bruce was able to get the rent cut in half in exchange for martial arts lessons. Unfortunately, it would only last three months as the owner discovered what was happening and evicted everyone. With his income, they were able to find another place easily, though. When filming began, they ran into a small problem because one... Bruce was a big child and was constantly performing stunts and trying to kick people in the earlobes. And two, he was just too fast for the camera. Judo Jean LaBelle, a professional wrestler, was a stunt coordinator and tasked with Bruce Lee. They bonded through their playful teasing on set and exchanged judo and wrestling lessons for kung fu lessons. He was probably the most suited to try to keep control of Bruce on set and keep him out of trouble. Now to fix his too fast for the camera problem. I actually love how they did this as I think it was the most effective way to get through to Bruce. They let him do his thing for the fight scene in the pilot episode and then invited him to watch the unedited footage and he was a complete blur. Upset, Bruce went to his dressing room and refused to come out. 
Van Williams, who played the Green Hornet and looked at Bruce like a rambunctious younger brother, came to talk to him. After letting Bruce express why he was upset, Van told him that that's what we've been trying to tell you. You have to slow it down so the camera can actually catch it. After a long talk, Bruce sorted out what he needed to do, and his improvement was immediate. So Bruce had some very well-hidden scandals from his wife, at least. When he was working on the fifth episode of The Green Hornet, Thordis Brandt was going to play a small part, and she noticed him right away. She introduced herself to him and said she was dumbstruck because Bruce was absolutely gorgeous. And let's be real, he was a very attractive man and liked to show off his body. While she was shooting for a small part in another movie, Bruce called and asked her to lunch, which of course she agreed to. He showed up to her set to meet her in his Cato valet outfit, and the producer thought he was an actual valet, telling him he isn't allowed there and to park up front. Thordis pointed out that he was Cato on the Green Hornet, and the producer apologized, but Bruce just shrugged it off. He knew where he was going in life and wasn't going to let that get to him. Their lunch date sparked an affair that lasted a few months until Thordis Brandt's on-and-off ex found out who she was seeing and hired a private investigator to look into him. He told her that Bruce was married with a child, and since Bruce didn't wear a ring, it wasn't obvious. She ended the affair after finding this out, and Linda never found out until, well, I'm sure a documentary, life story, or an after-death confession at least. A year before the case of Loving v. Virginia that made mixed-race marriage legal across the country in 1967, the press would eat up Bruce Lee's marriage and family as a non-threatening novelty to get behind. It was positive publicity that helped to market the Green Hornet and got Bruce's name out. It also shed some positive light on mixed-race marriages. When the Green Hornet was released, it did well for the first few episodes, but the ratings declined after those initial three. For Bruce, though, it was all positive as his character was favored by critics and children. He became the most famous martial artist and would have profiles in Black Belt magazine and invitations to headline karate tournaments. And one final attempt to not get Green Hornet canceled, they did a crossover with Batman. Robin was supposed to beat Kato, and Bruce protested that no one would believe Robin could actually beat him, so they agreed on a draw. However, it didn't go well, and unfortunately, in April of 1967, ABC announced that they would not be renewing the Green Hornet. Not sure where his acting career would go, he returned to teaching Kung Fu and opened a branch in the Los Angeles Chinatown. He would appoint Dan Inosanto as his assistant instructor after taking him on as a student from Ed Parker, who hosted the karate championship. Dan would bring in a group of the top students to meet Bruce, and after a demonstration of his technique and philosophy, they all jumped ship to learn from Bruce immediately. The new studio would be like an exclusive club that did not have signage out front. The front door was locked and would be only opened after a secret knock. Any new students had to be sponsored by a current member, and new students would have six months for a trial period. The students who became good enough to spar with him would be invited to his home gym setup to work out. He never charged for what they did there, as he was mostly experimenting with his technique. He didn't like touch sparring, as it wasn't realistic to stop just before impact, so he was the first to come up with protective gear for his students so they wouldn't get hurt when he really did hit them. On July 9, 1967, Bruce would name his new martial arts in Cantonese as Jeet Kune Do, which translated to stop fist way or the way of the intercepting fist. He would describe it like this. There are three opportunities to strike an opponent, before he attacks, during his attack, or after he attacks. Jeet Kune Do means to intercept before he attacks, to intercept his movement, his thoughts, or his motive. He had elements from everything he learned, 
like boxing, kung fu, fencing, and wing chun. His opponents would say sparring with him was so frustrating because he was on you before you could react. It wasn't that he was just fast, but it seemed he could predict your potential movement before it happened. Bruce's problem as a teacher was that he could pass on his idea, but not his talent, and you needed both for Jeet Kune Do. It was also his own personal system, and he believed that his students should follow their own path. His philosophical inspirations come out when he talks about his style, how he has adapted it for many other forms, and that everyone should figure their own style out. He called Jeet Kune Do the style of no style, and his school slogan was using no way as way, having no limitation as limitation. The Green Hornet may not have been a hit with American audiences, but it was adored in the martial arts community. And Black Belt Magazine knew they should associate themselves with Bruce Lee. In 1968, the seven-foot, two-inch college basketball star Lou Alcindor, later named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, walked into the Black Belt office looking for a book on Tai Chi. Instead, they told him if he wanted to know anything about Chinese martial arts, they knew the guy for him, Bruce Lee. Bruce was excited at the prospect of trying to spar with someone who was so much larger than him, and it would be another way for him to improve his technique. Bruce would take him on as a private student, and Abdul-Jabbar would think of Bruce as a renegade Taoist priest. When he was drafted with the Milwaukee Bucks and wanted to gain more weight to compete against the bulkier centers, Bruce would create a special diet and workout program for him. Bruce would daydream about a fight scene in a film where he would get to sidekick him straight in the face. Bruce also picked up some private students from the karate championships held by Ed Parker and would even be featured in his advertisements. The crowds were interested in Kato more than karate. However, he would get students to teach at his home in private like Mike Stone, Joe Lewis, and Chuck Norris. They were champions, so they didn't want it to be known as a teacher-student relationship, so they would say they were working out with each other and were just two professionals sharing techniques. However, he did greatly improve their ability to compete, and Joe Lewis credits him with helping to accelerate his career and win 11 consecutive grand championships. Chuck Norris credits himself as helping to improve Bruce's kicking technique, while Bruce helped him improve his punches. Even though Bruce was capitalizing on his martial arts styles with schools, he didn't want it to be a set form that was mass-produced. Due to his success as Kato, he received many offers to open a nationwide franchise of Kato Karate Schools. This money would have been steady, it could have provided a stable future for him and his family as acting was up in the air, but it went against the individuality Jeet Kune Do was supposed to be. He told his friends he didn't want to prostitute his art for the sake of money, so he would turn down the offer. However, after a talk with the co-producer of The Green Hornet, he found a better way to make money teaching his practice. He informed Bruce that he was charging way too little, and now that he had a screen credit to his name, he should charge more. If it costs more, it appears to be more special and will create more interest. So he printed new business cards with his higher prices and gave them to hairstylist Jay Sebring to pitch to his Hollywood clients and would land his first one, Vic Damone. Vic Damone would credit Bruce's relaxation practices in helping to improve his singing. Damone would also talk about Bruce and spread a fantastical story about Bruce beating up Sammy Davis Jr.'s bodyguard that spread like wildfire making him the most sought-out martial arts instructor in Hollywood. This would catch the attention of screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, who would train with Bruce for three years and do whatever he could to help Bruce make it in Hollywood. Siliphant would also recruit James Coburn, who trained for three years as well, and would even modify a bedroom in his home to match Bruce's gym. In August of 1967, Bruce would meet and befriend Steve McQueen, the man he wanted to outdo on the big screen. All these famous men met him, trained with him, and befriended him. 
Steve McQueen said that one time when he was feeling bad, Bruce just called him like he had a sense Steve needed to talk. Bruce could bond with him privately, but the Hollywood party scene was very difficult for him. They were seen as a good way to network, but Bruce always felt like an outsider, as usually he was the only Asian. This made him feel very nervous. Also, everyone would be drinking, and that was something Bruce just couldn't do as he suffered from alcohol flush reaction, or referred to as the Asian glow. He lacked the enzyme needing to metabolize alcohol and would turn red, sweat, and often become nauseous. However, it was the 60s, and Bruce could definitely metabolize marijuana. This would become his drug of choice. When everyone was drinking or doing other drugs, this would be his thing. It was the one way to get never sit still to actually sit still. Technically, you put this in our scandalous file, but let's be real, it was the 60s, and I mean, how many places have legalized it now? By the end of 1968, his core Hollywood clientele would include Sterling Siliphant, James Coburn, Steve McQueen, Blake Edwards, Roman Polanski, Cy Weintraub, and casino magnate Belden Kittleman. Due to demand, he was sprucing up those business cards to now read $275 per hour, 10-session course $1,000, instruction overseas $1,000 per week plus expenses, which is double the price, and his current clients had no problem with the increase. That's some good money today to pocket without inflation, but in case you're wondering, it's almost $2,300 per hour. Now I'm going to go ahead and leave it here, and next week I'll get into the final years of his life and the struggles in Hollywood and triumphs in Hong Kong. I hope you all are enjoying this so far as I'm unpacking so much of his life for you, even though I'm leaving so much of it out as well. I've compacted over 230 pages of information that I've read into about 16 so far. Bruce has had his first Hollywood role that would get him some attention, and he named and defined his new form of martial arts to solidify his legacy, even if at the time he didn't know that. His movie career isn't exactly taking off like he wanted to due to a lack of Asian roles and cough-cough discrimination, but he is creating a following in the martial arts scene that all of Hollywood wants to access. Bruce's life is currently on a balancing scale between his passions of acting and martial arts. So I hope that you will join me next week for the next Bruce Lee installment. If you have any suggestion for future stories, or maybe you have a story you want to share with me, you can send it to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. Give me a follow on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE, or you can find me on Twitter at BTE underscore pod. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.